All right, so we are in a series right now titled Family Matters. And we talked last week about how it's so important to pay attention to your spouse. In fact, how you got to get your life and your relationship centered on the right things. So the first thing we talked about, it, some of you guys were here, the number one in your life should be somebody from last week. God, thank you, right? And then the second one should be somebody from last week. Spouse, right? So it should be God, and then it should be your spouse. Notice children aren't up there yet. Children come right around in three, and all the children get angry and get frustrated. But that's okay, because if your parents don't place their spouse, if, if your mom doesn't place your dad for a second, and if your dad doesn't place your mom second, your life will not be as fun, okay? They need to place each other second. It's the way that things were ordered to work. So we talked about that last week and how important it is that everything else we talk about throughout this series... If we don't have that as the first keystone habit that we adopt and grab a hold of and apply to our lives, if that's not it, the rest of this really isn't going to matter. It's going to be great. It's going to be a good TED Talk, but it's not really going to make a big difference in your life because if God isn't at the center, nothing's there to really hold it together. And we used a solar system illustration last week, and we saw how important that was. Now, for this week and over the next four, we're going to talk about four specific keystone habits that if you apply to your marriage, your marriage will get better. It just truly will, because they're biblical principles, and they're backed up by psychological studies as well. So there's stuff the apostles tell us about, they're the things Jesus tells us about, but then when we find out a little bit later when doctors start coming around and psychologists begin doing some research, we find out that what they told us so many years ago actually still applies today, and it's still relevant, and in fact, it's the best way to live in a marriage. As we talked about last week, the basis of your family is the husband and the wife. You don't have to have kids to be a family, the husband and the wife. Now, for those of you that sit back and you go, look, I ain't married. Brandon, I appreciate you talking about it, but I ain't married. And I'm, I'm not even old enough to be married. I don't want to be married. I ain't got no kids. I don't want none of that. Okay, hold on. If you apply these four principles in any relationship in your life, those relationships will be better. They just simply will. If you extrapolate those out and put them in just about any relationship, those relationships will be better. But if you have a romantic relationship, I implore you to just try them. Just try them. See how it will work. So we are starting a very important one today. But before we get there, let me just ask this question, and I'm sure if you are married, you know what I'm talking about. How many of y'all had to where you want to eat question on date night, right? Where you're like, honey, where you want to eat? Right? And then and what do they say? I don't know, right? Or the other one is, I don't care. And then you're like, all right, cool, let's go to Kava. And they're like, well, I don't want to eat Kava. But you just say you didn't care. If you didn't care, how come I can't make the decision and choose to go over there? Because you don't want to go, right? You've experienced this before. You've experienced this probably multiple times. You may have experienced it already before when you're trying to figure out where you're going to eat after church today. Right, you may have already experienced it, but it's just important. You got to choose. Now, I don't know if you're anything like me, but making decisions sometimes can be kind of hard. Choosing something could be difficult at moment, at times. Now, my son Grayson, he he uh, he's been earning money by reading. That's part of the thing we do. Like you got to finish books, you got to finish chapters, or you really started with chapters, and now, hey, you finish books, we'll pay you off about it. Yes, I'm bribing him with money. He needs to understand that's money. <laughs> I want you to read. I'll pay you a dollar for every book you read. None of y'all of him. But 
He, so we started to get him to read that way, and he'll go to the store. We'll go to Target or, you know, one of those stores, and we'll let him kind of wander around. It takes that child 40 minutes to pick a $10 toy, okay? He wanders around the aisles. He can't make up his mind. He can't make a decision, and I understand it because when I get gift cards, that's free money, right? It's not real, so I can just spend it wherever and however I want, and since it's gift money and it's free money, I got to make sure it counts. So I'm the guy that's walking up and down Target's aisles for four flipping hours trying to figure out what I'm going to buy with my $25 gift card because I can't make a decision. I can't choose exactly what I want to buy. Some of you have a spouse, don't look at them, that does the same thing, right? Making these decisions and choosing these things is just hard. It can be difficult sometimes. And some of you, you don't care. Burns a hole in your pocket, you get it, it's gone. Decisions are easy for you to make. But for some of us, choosing is a lot more difficult. And what we're going to talk about today is a choice that you have to make all the time. And it's not going to be as easy as where am I going to spend my Target gift card or where am I going to spend my Amazon gift card. It's going to be far more difficult than that, but the rewards will be far, far, far greater. And I'm inviting you to experience that today. Now, before we get started we need to grab a hold of the scripture that we're going to be coming out of. So we're going to be coming out of 1 Corinthians, okay? So the idea of 1 Corinthians, Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. So there's two Corinthian letters we know of, 1 and 2 Corinthians. Then there's a third Corinthian letter that got lost in antiquity, and maybe one day we'll find and we'll add it into the Bible when we find it then. But for right now, we, we only have the two. In this first one, Paul's writing earlier in his ministry, he planted the church in Corinth. He loved the church in Corinth. That was his place. He loved them. He spent two years with them at the first iteration of planting that church. Now, Corinth was like all these churches that Paul planted in a pagan society. Since it was in this pagan society, they tried to pull away from the pagan worship and apply to the Christian worship, which Paul was always like, hey, you can't do that. It was consistent. They tried to compromise their values. They had trouble leaving what they knew before behind in order to apply the new things that Paul had taught them about Christ. So it was difficult for them, which is why you see in a lot of these letters, a lot of these letters are corrective. A lot of these letters are lovingly nudging people in a certain direction because they had trouble leaving behind what they knew so well, or they tried to mix and match what culture around them and the world around them was telling them with what Paul and the gospel of Christ was telling them which is why you should read your New Testament letters more often than you do. But in this particular letter, Paul outlines all sorts of different things. He outlines all sorts of different things. Because he, 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 again, he loved this church. And the chapter right before that we're going to talk about today, the chapter right before, he's talking about spiritual gifts and all the different gifts of the Spirit. And I mean, these are some of the heavy hitters. He's talking about things like, like gifts of prophecy. He's talking about gifts of tongues, gift of healing, other spiritual gifts, and then other just, you know, gifts that you don't really think are spiritual gifts, but they truly are. He's talking about all these different types of things, and they're really kind of a guideline on how you behave when you receive or when you, you know, administer or handle a spiritual gift. This is what you do. So he kind of lays it out and kind of sets a guideline for everybody. And then he begins to talk about unity, the body of Christ, about greater gifts than these. And then he kind of neat and wraps it all up here with chapter 13. And for those of you that have been married, you probably recognize chapter 13. You'll recognize it in the first verses we start to read. If you've been part of it any amount of time, 
you will recognize, if you've been part of the church any amount of time, you'll probably recognize some of these sayings. Maybe if you're not even part of the church, you'll, re- you'll hear some of this. You'll be like, oh, I thought that was from a TV show. No, it's from the Bible, believe it or not. But you'll probably recognize this, probably something you've experienced a whole, whole bunch. What Paul's point is, is what he's about to talk about, the gift he's about to talk about, because that's how he frames it. The gift that he's about to talk about is greater than everything else he covers in chapter 12. And he covers gifts of healing, he covers gifts of prophecy, he covers words of knowledge, he covers all of it. And he says, the gift we're about to talk about today is the most significant. It pales in comparison to the other gifts right now. So with that, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, starting in verse 1. If I speak in tongues, now remember, he just talked about tongues. If I speak in tongues of men or of angels... But I do not have love. I am only a resounding gog or a clanging cymbal. I'm just making noise. He says, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, which he's quoting Jesus here, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. He says, if I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship so that I may boast, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. Let me put it in today's context. Just because you're a talented speaker or a leader, if you don't have love in your life, you're nothing. Just because you have the capability to make a lot of money, if love isn't the leading ethic in your life, it doesn't matter. Just because you may be the best looking guy or the best looking guy around, or the gal around, It doesn't matter if you don't have love. You may be able to provide your kids with all the financial blessing and taking them to baseball games and football games and flying them all over the world and doing all these really great things, but without love, it simply doesn't matter. Paul's point is that if we don't have love as the main ethic of our life, and remember, he's speaking this to a pagan culture. He says if if love is not the ruling ethic of your life, It's not going to matter what you can do. It's not going to matter who you can do it for. It's not going to matter how much money you make. It's not going to matter how good of a leader you are. It's not going to matter how many children you have. You better make a lot of money, you're going to have a lot of children. But it's not going to matter any of that, how many diamonds you can put on your lady's wrist. It doesn't matter. None of it matters if you don't have love. Your skill set and your ability to lead in your job doesn't mean anything if you're not leading with love. That is what the Apostle Paul is talking about. And we go, well, why is love such an important part? Because it's the way that you were made. You were made with the idea of love, agape-style love, at the center of who you are. And you go, what are you talking about? Well, you're created in the image of God. And the center of God, he talks about it, the Apostle John talks about it. He says, God is love. And First John, as he's writing his letter, he's looking back on his life with Jesus and experiencing and unpacking what he dealt with with Jesus. And he says, you know what? I've experienced a whole lot of things, and this is old man John. He's, he's old now. He's been a lot of time. He's a seasoned saint. So he is looking back on his life, and he says, you know what? This is what I know. Whoever does not love does not know God. That's what I know. 
If they claim to do it and they go to church, yeah, but Brandon, they go to church 51 out of the 52 weeks of the year. Yeah, no, no, I understand. But Brandon, no, you don't understand. They give thousands of dollars to the church. They give thousands of dollars to nonprofits. I mean, they're at every single serve day. They serve in five or six different teams across the church, Brandon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Apostle John says, but whoever does not love does not know God. That all of a sudden the most important thing in your life should be the way that you handle the love ethic. And then he goes on, he says, whoever does, not, whoever does not love does not know God because God is, what's the word? Love. Because you are made in the image of God. If God is described as love, then love is a key part of your life. And that means it's a key part of who you are. And you know this doesn't work when people, you've met those people that have no love in their life. You don't like to be around them, do you? You want to avoid them. You don't want to work for them. You don't want to work with them. You don't want to work around them. You don't want to be married to them. You don't even want your kids to play t-ball with their kids. You don't want to be around somebody that ain't got no love in their life. And you know how that works. So the Apostle John lays it out. So Paul Paul, in his, is his, is his life, as he begins to, or his, uh, his letter here, he begins to lay out the foundation of what it means to love. He opens it, those first three verses, he opens it with, it is so important, it is core and fundamental to your spiritual makeup. And if you're one of those tough guys in the back going, I don't need love, right? You're just one of those guys who are, oh, I'm not, I don't need any of that. Yeah? You sure? Because I've seen guys that really don't need love. And they're not, they're barely humans. They will kill at a whim. They don't care. So I would hazard to guess that if something happened to your children, you would need love. I would hazard to guess that if something happened to your wife, you would need love. And I would hazard to guess that love was a fundamental part of your life and still is part of your day to day. So the apostle lays it out for us. So he says, this is how important it is. He spends three verses on it. He says, three sentences. This is how important it is. Because without it, you are nothing. I'm like, all right, Paul, we got it. Without love, we are nothing. Without love, we're, we got it. We need to lead with a love ethic in our life. Got it. We're there. And he goes, okay, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Right? That's why, that's why I don't sing, y'all because it would be really bad. Uh, I, I even thought about maybe opening the whole service with what is love, baby, don't hurt me, but it's probably inappropriate. But he, the Apostle Paul then begins to describe what love is. He describes what love is. So, this is the part you've probably had read at your wedding. Love is patient. Okay, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, and it keeps no record of wrong. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And you've probably heard that many, many times. Believe it or not, it's in the Bible. It's not on friends, okay? It's straight from the apostle's mouth. Now, you may hear all those things and say, yeah, 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 Brandon, that's great. You're right. Love is all those things, but it is really hard 
to do that in my relationship. You're absolutely right. And you may say, Brandon, all those things, they're so naive. And I mean, come on, the one that doesn't fit is at the very end. It always trusts. Brandon, love cannot always trust. I mean, come on, sure, you want to say persevere, fine. We'll, we'll, we'll make believe it. love perseveres, Brandon. But I mean, come on, trust? Brandon, love can't do that. It, it always hopes. Come on, that doesn't make any sense. And I'm telling you that if we can apply what we're going to talk about today, this keystone habit to your life, to your marriage, your marriage will get better. Even if you started with it and you just reignite that fire and you go back to, hey, putting this love ethic first, your life will change. Your marriage will change. Your marriage will simply get better. In order for this to make sense, I have to demonstrate. Your whole experience with your life or your, your, your relationship with your wife or your husband works something like this. You have an expectation, you have an experience, and then you have a response, right? Your expectation is this is what I wanted him or her to say and or do. Your experience doesn't always match up with that. Somebody say Amen. You expect your husband to react a certain way when you tell him about the job you got or you tell him about your promotion. He doesn't. She doesn't. Your experience doesn't match your expectation, which then gives a response. Half the time, the responses aren't very good, are they? Especially when the experience and the expectation don't match. When you're expecting him to say a certain thing, when you're expecting her to behave a certain way, or when you have it set in your head, this is, this is what a wife is supposed to say and do. This is what a husband is supposed to say and do. This is what I expected you to do. But they don't do it. Your response is totally different. And you, the only thing that we can control really out of this whole thing, because your expectations are set by your life. Your life is full of building these expectations for your husband or building these expectations for your wife. In fact, it's almost like when you get married, you hand them a box full of expectations. Then you say, I need you to fill out all those things. And we don't mean to do it, it just happens. So life kind of fills your expectation box. And you get it and you hand it to your spouse. And then it doesn't connect with your experience. And then you respond. Most of the time, the response is not positive. Case in point, give you an easy example for me. So let's say on Sundays, I, want, I see Leah and I want her to tell me how good the sermon was. I need her, I want her to tell me how good her sermon was because her opinion matters more than anybody else in my life. So I really want her to tell me how good the message was. She says, I didn't, I didn't catch much of it. My response, what I hear, what I go to, well, she doesn't care. She thinks, she obviously doesn't think what I'm saying is valuable. Well, she's, she's not in this. She thinks I'm just up there making noise. She, she, she doesn't care, right? You have an option of what you place in that last slot. You have an option of how you view the entire interaction. And if you lead with love, it will change the way you view it. But... Rarely do we lead, or le rarely do we lean in the direction of grace in our responses, right? We often expect the worst. He didn't care. She doesn't care. You know, I've asked him not to do that, and he's done it again. 
He obviously isn't listening, and he's too stupid, right? You wouldn't say this to him, but this is how you feel. Or she's just so harsh. Why is she so hard on me? I mean, I can't say anything. She's harsh, just like her mother was harsh. He's, you know what? He doesn't care about it. Just, he doesn't care about it just like his father didn't care about it. You know what? I expected him to behave this way, and he didn't. So I'm not that important to him. She failed to respect me again. She just doesn't respect me. She doesn't care. You have the option to decide what is placed in your response. And what you believe and what you place in that response tremendously affects your marriage. Tremendously affects your marriage. Because we have a tendency to believe the worst. We have a tendency to sit back and say, they did that on purpose. They don't care. I'm not important to them. What I said didn't mean anything to them. We have a tendency, and this is just the way the world works, and this is the way we are as humans. We have a tendency for our response to be negative. But you know what happens then. It starts a negative spiral downward. Now, if you've been married for in any amount of time, you understand how hard it is to believe the best. And you understand how difficult it can be or how difficult it is in those moments to believe the best. So, in 1998, the Positive Psychology Center was founded by Martin Siegelman. And one of the things this Positive Psychology Center set out to do was evaluate happy couples. I mean, not just happy couples that have been dating or married six months. We, everybody's happy for the first six months. Okay, everybody's happy for the first six months. I'm not interested if, like, the first six months, that's easy. After that, it becomes difficult. Sometimes it gets difficult after the first six weeks. Somebody say amen. But no matter what, they're not looking at those couples. They're looking at couples that went the distance. I'm talking 30, 40 years. And they began to evaluate them. They did this over the period of, like, 16 years. So they're evaluating all these people. They're evaluating all, the, all these different things. And then this is the conclusion that they came to. And this was so groundbreaking. This was so, and then when you pair it up with what the apostle says, you're like, duh. But for us, we don't think about it. And we just don't recognize it. But in this study, they found that the ones who lasted the longest in their relationship, they were the happiest in their relationship, they enjoyed being with their partner after kids left. Somebody say amen. Those people, they said, they always consistently believed the best about their partner. So when the expectation and the experience didn't connect, they didn't look and say he doesn't care. They didn't look and say she doesn't care. They didn't look and say he did it again. They didn't look and say she did it again. In those moments when, when the expectation and the experience didn't connect, it didn't match, it didn't work, the couples that were the happiest were when they extended grace to their partner, when they extended grace to them. In fact, the studies found that the individuals actually rated themselves lower than their partners rated them. So they would do these assessments 
And the husband would say, you know, I'm probably a five, you know, probably a five or six out of ten on, you know, how well I love and care for my wife, how much I physically or emotionally care for her. The wife would come in at this happy couple and she would say, oh, no, he's probably an eight or nine. And it was consistent all across the board. The husband and wife consistently rated one another and lifted one another up one time after the next. That they believed the best, or as the King James Version, they believed all things. They believed the best. They leaned on grace. They leaned on love. They didn't try to set a trap for their husband or for their wife. They didn't try to get a ha, gotcha moment. They weren't keeping a record of wrongs. They weren't interested in any of that, and they had conversations that they needed to have. But what made those couples happy? What made the difference that moved the needle was consistently They decided to choose to believe the best. Day in and day out, they believed the best out of their spouse. And that created an upward, what they called an upward spiral of love. Why? Because it's like this. It goes something like this. They would believe the best, which built trust. Because I know that I have the space to fail. That's what it says. Because when you do that and you believe the best, your husband or your wife can look around and say, you know what, I feel like I, I, that no matter what, you love me. No matter what, you care for me. You're not trying to catch me up. You're not trying to get me to say something or do something. To, you're not keeping track of how many times I forgot to take out the trash. And, and men, thank God they don't keep track of that, right? You're not keeping track of how many socks he leaves on the floor, okay? He, we ain't keeping track how much hair y'all put down the drain. Okay, that they're not keeping, tra- not keeping a record of wrongs. That's what he said, that we're not keeping a record of wrongs because it builds trust. And once trust becomes the center of the relationship, that leads to intimacy and not just physical intimacy, that's part of it, not just physical intimacy, but emotional intimacy, which is closeness. Intimacy is simply being known. That's what it is. You know your partner and it's being known by them. So it's being, and they begin intimacy both physically and emotionally because trust sets the foundation for it. And then after that, guess what? Leads to more happiness, which then means they believe more of the best. And the next time something happens, they believe the best. And the next time something happens, they believe the best. And maybe you're one of those people like me, which before I found all this research, somebody would say, oh, I've got the best husband in the world. I'd be like, you don't believe that. Or she would say, I got the best, you know, I got the best wife in the world. I'd be like, you don't believe that. Until you actually think about it and, and you understand the research that they found that those are actually the couples that do the best. When she sits there and says, he's amazing. When he stands there and says, she's amazing. When they build one another up and when something bad happens, they don't go, ha, gotcha. Maybe there's some of us that do. They don't do that. The happy couples look and go, I bet there's an excellent reason why you didn't do that. I bet there's a great reason why you said that. Okay? I bet there's a great reason why you didn't react that way. You know what? I'm going to lead with the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to believe the best. It is so, so important because, let's be honest, that's what love does. Love is believing the best in somebody. Case in point, 
your heavenly father believed the best in you or else he wouldn't have sent his son for you. So if we're to imitate that, then we have got to believe the best in our spouse. You do that, the entire dynamic changes in your life. The entire dynamic changes. Because you, remember, you decide how you respond. You can't really, you know, your expectations, you got to curb them, you got to try to handle them, but a lot of times those are set by life. You know, the experience, you can't control what she does, you can't control what he does. But what you can control is your response. And your response can create an upward or a downward spiral depending on how you behave. And imagine, just think about this, what happens if they both believe the best? That might be a marriage that lasts 60 years. Right? I mean, that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about. Because you have your expectation, your experience, and then your moment is when you decide to respond. So back to my example, I want Leah to tell me how good I did. She says I wasn't really paying attention, or I, I wasn't able to hear the whole thing. Initially, my response, if I'm just going with what the world says, kind of flowing with all of that, I'm just like, hey, you don't care about me. You don't think what I say is any value. You think I'm stupid. You think this, and I fill in the blank. Now, if I lead with the love ethic, right, and I lead with this idea of believing the best, I'm going to go, you know, I bet she was super busy with kids in the back. I bet she had so much going on because I did give her three rugrats running around. She probably can't hear anything I say because she's being talked to by three different humans all the time. Or, you know what, she, she's leading a whole ministry in this church. There's no way she's able to pay attention to what I'm saying. She's got so much going on, of course. Do you see the difference? Your response has a tremendous amount of weight in the marriage. And it's not easy. But with that view in mind, with that view in mind, instead of, instead of going, he did it again, she did it again, maybe go, I'm sure they had a, a good reason. I'm certain they had a good reason. I'm certain they had a good reason. You know, she failed again, right? Instead of going, she, she messed it up again. Instead of doing that, going, hey, she's got, she got a lot on her plate. She is so busy. Or, you know, he doesn't care just like his father didn't care. No, he, he actually really does care, but work has been horrible the last couple weeks, and that's all he can think about because one of his employees quit, and now he's trying to figure out how to cover down on that. You know, so I know that he really does care. Or she's harsh just like her mother is harsh. No, 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 she's not harsh. It just simply hurts her so much to see me not living up to my potential. She's not harsh. She's just, she, she's just trying to explain something. And it changes the entire dynamic when you decide how you are going to respond. Now, with that in mind, let's read the apostles' words again. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It does not boast. And it is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. Keeps no records of wrongs. Highlight that in your Bible. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. And we go, well, what does that mean? That means that they're not rejoicing when you mess up. That means that love, really loving your spouse, is not being excited when they mess up so you can tell them how much they did bad how much they didn't live up to, how much they didn't measure up. That's what that means. And then after this, hits the, 
It's the big four, the four that we struggle with all the time. They are great. They sound great, and they look great on a T-shirt. They look great on a coffee mug. But man, if they ain't hard to do in your life, he says, it meaning love always protects, always puts the other person first. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. Because when it protects, trusts, and hopes, it will persevere. But if you take trust and hope out of there, it ain't going to persevere very long at all. And then he caveats it at the very end, just kind of highlights it, puts an exclamation point on the thought and, said, and says that love never fails. Not the fabricated culture time, you know, I fell in love at first sight. That's not, that's not that ain't it. Right? That, that, love is a choice. You have to choose daily. You have to choose daily to believe the best. You have to choose daily, sometimes, multiple times in the day. Right? Some of y'all been married a long time, been like, boy, I've been choosing love for 50 years. Because that's what it means. It means believing the best in somebody. Believing the best in them. It's a conscious decision. It's a choice every single day. Because again, the expectation you can't affect, the experience you can't affect, but your decision you can affect. And then at the end of the entire section, Paul wraps it all up, puts a nice bow on it in case we lose track. He says, and now these three remain, meaning everything else is going to pass away. All of the rest of it's not going to matter. But faith, your faith in God, you're hoping what he's going to do. So faith, hope, and somebody say the last one, love. And But the greatest of these is love. Believing the best. And there are moments where it's going to be hard. And do not, please, do not think I understand how simple it is. Or that, that, I, that I believe it's all this simple. Been married 10 years, only been saved for about five or six of it, okay? That means before that, it's pretty messed up. <laughs> Just being honest, right? Went through the whole docket. Been there, done that. And I can tell you, when you apply these things, and it's not easy. In fact, look at your wife or your spouse or your partner right now and say, this isn't going to be easy. Tell them that. Say, this isn't going to be easy. But listen to me, it's going to be worth it. It's going to be worth it. And you're going to want to push back and you're going to want to make excuses and you're going to want to say, yeah, 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 but they did it again for the 50th time. Yeah, 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 no, no, she did it again. She said it again. He did it again. Instead of going in that direction, believe the best. That doesn't mean you avoid conversations. You have conversations. You say, honey, you've forgotten to take out the trash 50 times. You do it again, I'm going to strangle you with the tie that we use to tie up the trash can, Okay. I'm just kidding. That's not what we're going to say, ladies, okay? But you can have those conversations. You've got to have those conversations. But when it happens at those moments, you are choosing love every step along the way. You are patient. You are kind. You're not boastful or prideful about how good you are or in how bad they are. You're not going to rejoice in evil. You're not going to rejoice when they mess up. Instead, you're going to rejoice in the truth. You're going to rejoice in those things. And there's going to be times when you have to choose to do that. 
You have to choose. You have to choose honor instead of dishonor. There's times when you have to put their needs above your own, which is more often, which is a whole other sermon we're going to cover too. There's times you're going to have to choose calmness over anger. There's times that you're going to have to reject keeping a record of wrongs and just forgive. And you go, well, Brandon, this is not what I was interested in. Well, then I'm sorry, and I hate to tell you, you probably shouldn't have got married. Can I just be real for a second? If you wanted your life to be all about you, you probably shouldn't have got married. And if you want your life to be all about you, do not have children. Right? <laughs> Some of the teachers are probably going to say amen to that. Like, don't, don't have kids. The minute that you began a family when you got married, guess what? Life isn't about you anymore. It changes. And that's what the Apostle Paul is trying to say. You keep no record of wrongs. That love is a daily choice that you have to make, that I have to make, that we all have to make. And again, I understand it's not that simple. I understand it's not that easy. I understand it's so easy for me to get up here and talk about it and joke around and rah, 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 and have fun and have the Bible behind me and, and do all that. I understand that how simple that looks. I understand how complex it's going to be to apply. But if you're able to take this, this biblical principle, this keystone habit that the Apostle Paul talks about as it relates to love, and you are able to apply it to your life, your marriages, and this is just the truth of it, will be better. Your relationship, your romantic relationships will just be better when you decide to believe the best. And so this week, and again, every single week, we're going we're gonna to talk about one of these keystone habits, and then I'm going to present you with a challenge because I want you to actually take it, write it down, take a picture, go home, put it where you can see it, put it at the background of your phone. I don't know. Figure out a way where you can constantly see it and start applying it to your marriage. This week, I want you to take the apostles' words. I want you to believe the best. When things don't look the way you want them to, when he didn't say what he was supposed to say, when she didn't do what she said she was going to do, when it happened again for the 20th time, when it happened again for the 30th time, I want you to believe the best. And if you find yourself going, oh, they did it again, have a conversation. If you find yourself frustrated and boiling up, have the conversation. But I encourage you and I challenge you this week, Believe the best in your spouse. Believe the best in your romantic relationship and see if it doesn't change your marriage or your relationship. So, with that, let's pray.